is your microphone on? My microphone is on. Okay. Thank good. you for checking at the beginning of the episode this time. I thought I would remind you yeah. based on our adventure last week. That is deeply appreciated. It is on. It is getting sound. I think we're going to be good. happy. Great. I don't want to speak for it. I don't know if it's happy. It could be having a rough week, too. <laughs> Let's not anthropomorphize our technology. Uh, oh. Well, we've just talked for an hour, and they'll never know what we said. But it was dynamic and uh, politically <laughs> politically charged. Yeah, I think that's that fair to say. Uh, so we got it out of the way so we don't have to burden you. Right. With all of our socialist leaning. You guys will just get the nice, unadulterated historical content that you're here for. Mm. As advertised. Mm-hmm. I got my wine. I got my wine sippy cup with a lid on it because it can't be trusted. <laughs> no stem to break, you know. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. Got my... I'm ready to rock. And I hand wrote my notes today. I don't know what possessed me. I think, I mean, just like getting away from the computer seems like such a good thing to do. I think just like, yeah, I had to, I still had to do research on the computer, but I was happy to physically write the stuff down. Mm -hmm. I think it just gets in your brain in a different way. Yeah, it definitely does. I I all of a sudden was like really thinking about how I was going to say it, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's pretty, you know. So if we get like, I don't a, know, you tell me, you se- you'll see if you track a difference, I guess. I will, you know, maybe who knows, you'll get like a stunning narrative about this. And now from ever forward, you'll have to write your notes out by hand. I can write my notes in pink pen in this notebook. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. Cool. Um, I did Fannie Mae first last week, right? Yes. I think it's my turn to go first. Okay. Okay. I'm so sorry. It'll be. It's okay. I think as a change for me, like rather than writing like a long narrative, I sort of just like threw some notes up and figured we could have like a bit more of like a like a conversational thing going oh you're gonna improv direction. it all right i'm gonna try okay. we're gonna see how this goes i'm here to support you i'm ready to converse clearly <laughs> yeah based hopefully. on our pre-game yeah. <laughs> yeah amazing well i think yeah then like let's let's jump in Welcome to Missing History, a podcast where each episode we discover the ladies we wish we'd learned about in history class. We uncover their stories, investigate their impact, and discuss how they've been ignored or sidelined. I think it's fair to say that like you and I use a fair amount of Wikipedia on this show or at least like it's where i start yeah usually same and i think like for like last week for example like i especially for like the topics i don't know anything about or know very little about wikipedia is Mm -hmm. always just like a helpful way to get like a lay of the land sort of know the context like point in the directions one should pursue more information it's also it's also helpful in my experience of like getting background on the time or the era ish or the locale so like i used it a lot um with Hurrem sultan mm-hmm. and like the ottoman turks and like what was their deal and what is a sultan and like all of those kind of foundational uh brief jumps you know through history just to kind of get some context it's helpful. And then for like a deep dive on the lady herself, I usually try and go somewhere else because I feel like Wikipedia is like, come on. Bit yeah. Of a, bit of a um, you, bit of a game of chance of like getting an accurate or like 
not kind of stilted yeah description right like i think we all sort of have a sense like we're reading through an article and we're like this is not the highest quality of material yeah this right is here. a point of view yeah mm-hmm. yeah so I, do, I so i don't think it would surprise any of our listeners given the general sweep of this podcast to learn that there is in fact a huge gender bias problem in wikipedia Oh, God, Michael. I know. I'm sorry. I promise there's a light it's at the everywhere. end of this tunnel. <laughs> it's just everywhere. It's a smog that we all breathe in. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, Continue. Great. And mm-hmm. so, like, there are there's sort of two parts to this. One is this idea that, in fact, seems that most people who edit Wikipedia are white North American men. About, like... 80% of Wikipedia's editors are male, and most of them does are their, white dudes who live in Does their language America. usually contain, well, actually, and then a tip of a fedora or something? Do it, they like to say m'lady more often than anyone should? I really hope there's no m'ladies. But, mm. like, the if you've ever read the, like, editor's notes on some, like, more contentious Wikipedia pages, they... I'm super haven't what's a content wait what's a contentious wikipedia page because i have some ideas (laughs) i i actually didn't go and look at a specific one for this story but i'm curious like what would you if you had to name like a contentious wikipedia page (laughs) if i had to if you were to like to throw some things out because it seems like you've got a funny one in mind men's rights movement (laughs) Uh, Men's Rights Movement of America or some whatever organization they decide to have. Um, White Lives Matter would be one that I think would be a little hot to handle. Um, Oh, I'm thinking of something else that I don't really want to say publicly. I think that's fair. I'm going to see if I can go to the discussion on the men's rights. Oh, no. Page. Um, the I don't know, or it's something like uh, just to be really sexist on my part, which mm-hmm. is you know, um, the Ryan Johnson Wikipedia page and like how accurate and awesome the Star Wars Force Awakens is listed or whatever. I don't know. I'm trying to think of like other meaningless fights people have had on the internet where you would have like impassioned criticism and i feel like star wars is always one of those and i remember ryan johnson got a lot of heat no matter what he did so yeah probably a star wars page that's probably got a lot of people thinking i think and by a lot of people i mean apparently white north american men i feel like they would enjoy that (laughs) the female ghostbusters remake does that have a lot of content let's go find out so interestingly at least from this brief glance so i've just checked um men's rights Ryan Johnson, and I'm now looking at the Ghostbusters. Oh, he probably doesn't want to be associated with that. I'm sorry, but I did. Um, no offense, so Ryan he, Johnson. So, I love your movies. Knives Out is like one of the best movies of the year. So like, unsurprisingly, um, like there is indeed a fair discussion page for the Ghostbusters 2016 remake. Um, it ruined everybody's childhood, apparently. Apparently, but ruined it. So there's a discussion Michael. about because it, it made them realize they were old. That's why it ruined it. Just to be clear, yeah. Sorry, it's so it's this extended conversation about whether or not it bombed or was a flop at the box office. Um, oh my god! And there's a very long conversation about it, and then just a little bit about removing a Breitbart source. 
um, an Australian soundtrack note, um, and a reminder about the name of the page, um, which is that it is the best name should be Ghostbusters 2016 because no one remembers the fact that the actual name of the movie is Ghostbusters Answer the Call. Um, but interestingly... It's like a bit of a pointed note. Yeah. But interestingly, the men's rights movement, while there is um, a lot, a lot, a lot of notes on it, just like so many notes on it, <laughs> Literal, like there are 31 pages of notes on the men's rights oh, movement. Why would that be a page. controversial topic to talk about? I can't imagine why. But there's also, so you know how, so Wikipedia, the sort of structure of it is there's often, there's editors who are volunteers and then, or contributors, and then there are sort of people who have a little bit more training and who do like a bit more of like hands on management of the pages. And they'll often be the ones who flag or sort of raise for discussion certain issues. Um, and you can tell something is being discussed frequently when a lot of those flags get raised. And this one has so many flags. Um, <laughs> but Fighting the good fight, gents. The, like, the one comment that lives on the main page is, I don't think I've ever come across an article on Wikipedia written with such a ridiculous amount of bias. Whoever is the primary author should be banned from editing this page and other similar subjects. That was published on March 27th, 2020. I wonder how it reads. I mean, it, it does them... I mean, without making you read a Wikipedia page on this podcast, which I don't think is very exciting for people, but does it read as if... I mean, it doesn't matter, right? Even if, like, it read anti... It wouldn't be anti enough, or if it read pro, it wouldn't be pro enough, right? Right. I mean, I think the, the the rather than the tone, I think the issue that I would point to with this, and the issue that the two women I want to discuss would point to it, is the fact that there is just so much airtime being taken up by the discussion of the men's rights movement Wikipedia page. Like a lot of people have put a lot of time and effort into figuring out this page when that effort one could argue might have been better spent on almost any other wikipedia article like this one there's like tons of references and links there are uh 230 links that and like there's further reading and there's other references which just suggests that people have spent hold on, a lot there's of a time. section in here called female privilege hold on <laughs> So, well, you work your way through that, which I can't even imagine what the other end of that thing. Paternity fraud. Ooh, there's a rape section, guys. Get some good info. No, no. Yeah. This has taken a turn. I don't think we want to be here on our podcast. No, I think, so So this, I think, is a great example, and we'll just leave it at the example and move on. But right, like... In, like, the broader world. I'm sorry, oh no. I just got to the comments. It's so long. There are so many of them, right? It's so many sources. There are... Citations. 230 of them. Which is... It's so long. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um. Okay, sorry. 
no need to apologize. I had, I'm going to have to go back and look at this because this is like sort of peak. This is like the perfect encapsulation of the problem that the two women I'm interested in talking about are interested in addressing. You asked and I I showed up for you. You did. You know what I mean? Thank and you. genuinely pulled out of nowhere. Yeah. What would a bunch of bored dudes have a lot of opinions about? I'm going to go with men's rights. Yep. So, so right. Um, that's fascinating. That's sort of totally direct because like now I just want to talk about that, <laughs> but we can, we should maybe do an episode about. No, let's talk about women instead. Yeah. These guys can just sit around and keep doing talk to each other their thing that's fine um so right so about so 80 percent give or take of wikipedia's art editors are men um and it will perhaps not surprise you then that of the english language biographies on wikipedia of which there are about 1.6 million only about 18 percent of them are about women Uh, okay um so like is that because we can't read michael who's to say or is it because we can't type because our wrists are too delicate there is in fact uh a page on wikipedia about gender bias in wikipedia um i'm sorry for doing a southern accent just then that was not (laughs) indicative of how i feel about women or like you know that was rude keep going sorry um and that page sort of talks about what some of those issues might be obviously like some of them are about like reproducing existing gender disparities already in the world like computer science is already a field in which like men are dramatically overrepresented and so people who tend to have interests in those sorts of fields also tend to be interested in editing wikipedia so in a lot of ways wikipedia is not to blame it's just reflecting back at us the like as you said earlier the like smog of misogyny that we're all swimming in constantly Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. But the, like, problem with that becomes, like, as we've both noted, like, it's sort of the first place you go to when you have a research question. You're like, I'd like to know more about something. Wikipedia is often the first thing that pops up in Google. It's, like, the place where most of those answers start. And so if it's... Also, um, just to be clear, Patriarch is a smog we all breathe in is a paraphrased quote from Brittany Packnett. If you don't follow her, follow her. She's pretty brilliant. So I don't want to take credit for that. Uh... She is her own person that comes up with really, really genius things to say. Amazing. And lead other people. I did not know that. Yeah. But it's a good quote, isn't it? It's a great quote. Put that on a mug. All right. Um, So, right. So, Wikipedia, it's more reflecting society, but it's also, in ways, reinforcing it. Um, And it's interesting, because the the example I was going to use, which, not men's rights, but men's rights is such a better example of this. Um, there's a 2014 Guardian op-ed that sort of talks about this. And the example it uses is that the female porn star page is much more rigorously researched and laid out and organized than the famous female writers pages. Just in terms of like what the demographic who edits Wikipedia is interested in putting like time and effort towards. It's fairly clear where the majority of those people's interests lie, which is. I mean, when you're doing it for free, I assume, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like people are doing this because they're interested in doing it. And so their tendency is to edit and write about the things they're already. And if they already have that knowledge in the old bank, then they're fine, right? They don't have to like spend extra effort Mm -hmm. reading Sylvia Plath when they've already watched plenty of stuff that lets them uh, edit that page more sufficiently. Yep. Awesome. 
Yeah. And they just have those facts, like, ready to relay. Or, you know, the they know where they're available to link to. And sort of... Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome, Michael. It's... <laughs> this is a great day. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll flag sort of just, like, one more thing before we get to the the ladies at the center of this, which is, like, there's also a pretty big English language bias problem with Wikipedia, which is just, like, oh, something to flag. But it's, like, there's not a lot of good English content about non-English language or non-European things. So, like, hard to do some research on Asia or Africa or even Latin America if it's not, you know, already existing in English. Westernized in some way. Um, But, right, so here we go. We've got a problem. The problem is there's too many dudes' biographies on Wikipedia. Uh, And this is particularly problematic. Is there too many dudes or is there not enough women? I would argue both. I would say, like, the, like, third string, like, replacement, like, soccer player for Real Madrid who never played a game during the regular season and never scored points probably doesn't deserve a Wikipedia page. And also, I'm sure he does. Oh, God. Sports players and pop culture figures are ridiculously (laughs) overrepresented on Wikipedia. Yeah. But... Or, do you know what I've noticed, though? With no research at all, Mm -hmm. so take that for what you will. I notice that if it's a famous person, um, and you know you have the right-hand side of, like, the brief facts about them, mm-hmm. born, died, what they do, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, if it's a king or someone whose succession matters, they will list their wife and their issue, their children. If it doesn't matter, like, if it's a singer, it doesn't matter who his kids are, Right then it won't list a spouse mm-hmm. in any way. If it's a woman, it'll list her spouse, regardless of her. Um, I have noticed that trend more often. It's not every single person, but I have noticed women are listed with their spouse more often than men are listed with their spouse in in famous zones that aren't like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, politician or if, where it doesn't matter who your kid is like every king has their kids listed if it matters right. you know what i mean at least the first 10 it's <laughs> problematic but, um, yeah yeah i've just noticed that or it's like oh so and so got married and sometimes there's men there if the men are desirable in some way i don't know it's very interesting how we have to know if they're married or not yeah i'm trying to remember to then have like a fantastical relationship with them in our brain yeah there was an episode we did pretty early where I think we might have flagged the fact that there, like, we had come across a woman whose Wikipedia page in no way mentioned the men she was married to. And that was rare. And that was so rare. Like, that rare enough to be mentioned. personal life section, right? Yeah. How many people, like, go to the Wikipedia and then immediately go to the personal life section? Right. It feels like... And that for women, it's and mostly... Usually, and the other thing I've seen is, too, it's just, like, first, th- first listing in, a, like, um, a woman's personal section is like wasn't married had no kids we gotta say that right off the bat if it matters Mm -hmm. whereas a man's like he went to oxford and he double majored in this and he loved picking apples with as a child with his brother shem or something like that and it's like (laughs) a whole life was lived whereas like the first two sentences are like didn't have kids or had kids this is when they had kids you know yeah it's always the like Oh, they didn't have kids. Why didn't they have kids? Nobody knows. We've thought about it a lot, though. We had to figure it out because it's just it's weird. It's so weird mm-hmm. when they don't do that. We don't know. How- We've got to tell you, too, that she didn't do it because she's a weirdo. Yep. 
So um, right. So no, there's. So I think we can agree. There's no mm. problem. Gender bias is fine. We can just end this right here. I think that's our big takeaway. Uh, I don't think the sarcasm is good for radio. Yeah, it's not coming through. Okay, great. Then, yeah, big problem. This is a big problem. This is a tender time for a lot of us. (laughs) You need to say what you mean. It's like... We can't live in hyperbole right now. So it's a a pretty major issue. um, And unsurprisingly, it's a worse issue for female scientists than it is just for women generally. There's like 18% of biographies and Wikipedia are on women. But only about 16% of the scientist biographies are about women. So, like, problem. Um, And luckily, for all of us who are interested in learning more about badass women, uh, there is a group of badass women who have been taking it upon themselves to correct this issue. Two in particular who I want to talk about are Jessica Wade and Miriam Zeringhalem, who are both um, sort of early career female scientists who have taken it sort of upon themselves not just to fix the wikipedia problem but both use the wikipedia problem as a way of pointing towards this bigger problem of the underrepresentation of women in science um so jessica is currently working as a research fellow at imperial college london her research focuses on leds which is pretty cool um, before she got into science, she took a foundations course in art and design, which is sort of like a college prep course to get you ready to go to art school. But then instead of going to art school, she got a master's in science and physics and a PhD in 2016, also in physics. Wow. Um, and it's interesting because she ta- when she talks about her trajectory and sort of her moment of reckoning with the fact that there were like very few women around her is that she didn't really notice the absence of other women until she got into her PhD program and was doing her PhD research and that until that point she had just been so focused on doing well that she hadn't really taken the moment to look around and realize that she was almost always in a space that was predominantly if not exclusively male Mm. but then in sort of having that realization one of the first things she did was start writing Wikipedia articles for women scientists. Um, she sort of has this this note, which is really kind of fascinating to think about, and then is also really depressing to think about. But um, when Marie Curie's Wikipedia page was first written, so like our good old Marie Curie, right? Arguably, like the most famous female scientist of all time, to the point where it's kind of a trope. Uh, she didn't get her own Wikipedia page. It was a joint Wikipedia page with her husband because she was apparently not important enough to merit her own page. Well, it was the own. Curies. It was their discovery, right? It was them. Right. But she also did like a bunch of things on her own <laughs> that like might merit uh-huh. writing about. Also, she's just, she's a, a person and. Also, it's the internet. Why do we got to save space? Right. We don't. This is actually the whole point of the internet. They can get their own files. Um, but so she... You literally just link them. Exactly. So she sort of took it upon herself uh, in a way to sort of write these women into the Wikipedia record. And in the first year she did this, she wrote about an average of a Wikipedia page a day. Uh, except on the days that she says where she got more excited and then she wrote two or three, which is an energy that I can really relate to. I've been there. 
You get amped up. Yeah. Um, and so she, to date, has written about 600 articles, um, and not just on female scientists, but on um, LGBTQ scientists, scientists of color, really just trying to sort of raise the profile of not white dudes on Wikipedia. Um, mm. And in sort of partnership with her um, is an American scientist, um, Marian, Mariam Zillingham who's, um, in addition to having a PhD in biology, uh, which she got in 2017, she's also a science policy writer and podcast producer. And we love a good podcast producer here on our podcast. Um, Mm -hmm. So she is based in D.C. and hosts the Science Soapbox podcast, which is a science policy podcast, um, but also is sort of made the, like, public-facing nature of her work really aimed at this question of, like, why are there not as many women in science as it you know seems like there should be? Um, and in particular has this really interesting story where she talks about a moment in fourth grade where she basically, she like cheats on a math placement test, but then <gasps> by like doing that and landing in this higher level math class realizes that she like could make herself be smart just by working really hard and sort of Mm. brace down for her this like some people are smart some people are dumb dichotomy and it's more like if you're willing to like learn the stuff you actually have it in your power to learn basically whatever you want to learn Uh, and that sort of attitude is what's pointed her in the direction of a lot of her work in the sense that one of the sort of big issues with women in science is that they're told that they can't like they're not smart enough to do it or that you know it's too hard for them and that's why sort of all along the pipeline you see women dropping out of science courses um i heard it was the sexual tension that arises in the lab i mean it is really hard in those sexy sexy lab coats for really anyone to focus on anything if there are women around i don't know about you but like a lab coat just really does it for me and yet the Navy can do it in a submarine and get by. So maybe we could just calm it down. Yeah. Well, if there's one thing we learned, we're not big fans of calming it down. Oh, my God. We're not. No. Um, but so she, her sort of big push is she is, um, in addition to all of the work she's doing, is on the board of this organization called 500 Women Scientists, which I hadn't really encountered before. But they're a science advocacy group. That was formed after the 2016 election that's working Mm -hmm. on sort of broadening and transforming leadership in science and advocating for more diversity and public engagement, and particularly, obviously, to get more women involved in science. What was, like, really interesting in sort of reading about both of their work is they're both responding not just to this absence of women in science, but also to this very often misguided and not infrequently misogynistic attempts to get more women in science. Um, Mm -hmm. There's some work that the European Union did and they made a video where it was like a bunch of supermodels sort of like strutting down the runway, but then also like figuring out the chemicals in like lipstick and nail polish. And they're like, this will get women interested in doing science, right? Um, Or like an engineering campaign to get more women into engineering. That's like 9% is not good enough as if, sort of implying it's somehow women's fault that they aren't getting into engineering. Um, mm-hmm. And so they're sort of looking at this and they're pointing to this thing that like one thing scientists really like is evidence-based everything. Like the whole point of science is making evidence-based decisions and figuring out answers mm-hmm. to questions. But when it comes to like encouraging women and people of color 
to become scientists, no one's really looking at any evidence-based things. They're just kind of throwing money at the problem because it's a PR issue. Mm-hmm. And so they both sort of looking at all of these attempts are like, there are better ways to do it. There's actually research on how to do it well. Maybe we should use some of that research to figure out how to do it. So rather than just like going and talking to students about how great it is to do science, um, they've also started including teachers and parents because often they're the ones doing a lot of the modeling about who should go into science. Um, Mm. And I mean, obviously the biggest thing they're doing is responding to this question that people ask all the time, like there are women in science. We just like don't see them because our image of a scientist is like, an Einstein-y dude with hair and a white lab coat. And so they're writing all these articles and they're basically holding up a big sign pointing at women who are in science right now and be like, no, they're right over here. Like right there doing this cool stuff. Um, Hmm. Which I I think like is a really, it's 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 a really good example of like uplifting and solidarity with the people who are already doing the work. It's just like their work is to point to the people doing it and being like, no, they're here. And they're doing it and they're doing a good job and maybe we should pay attention to them. Right. Here's other things you can focus on that's not terrible. Exactly. But it's interesting to note that um, another one of the biased things is that uh, pages about women get flagged more frequently as sort of, are these women important enough to be on Wikipedia than pages about men? What? Um, And not significantly more of it's about like, important yeah so wikipedia has like it's noteworthy standard and you only can get a wikipedia page if you achieve the like noteworthiness standard for the particular like type of person you are what's my face doing michael i I can't quite put words on it but it is let me just let me just see if um let me just think who would be worthy any of the guys on jackass let's see jackass the movie Jackass, the Jeff Tremaine, Steve-O, Ryan Dunn, Johnny Knoxville, Bam Margera. They all get their own pages. Mm-hmm. Cool. So who is a woman that wouldn't be noteworthy enough? Do you have an example? Um, I don't have a specific... Secretly hoping you say no. Um, I don't have a specific example, but Jessica, um, in giving an interview, said about 1%, so 6 out of the 600 articles she's written, um have been taken down or flagged because they're about women not notable enough. Um, And sometimes it's like they're, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a very specific sort of like Wikipedia esque problem where they're like, you don't quite have enough links to the right kind of sources or like an editor doesn't think it quite meets the standards, but it's, it's measurable. That's about like a percent more. So like two or so percent of, Articles about men get flagged, and about three to four percent of articles about women get flagged. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. It is that feels... definitely a thing. It feels good. Um, on today's featured picture on Wikipedia, it's by Elizabeth Lebrun, who was a prominent French portrait painter. So that's fun. Very cool. She most notably served as Marie Antoinette's portrait painter. That seems like a that's kind of cool. Like a rough. Gig. That seems like someone we should talk to. Yeah, let's add that to the list. Ooh, her paintings are pretty good. Amazing. They actually have different faces. I feel like after a certain <laughs> era, like they all have the same face. They have giant noses and no chins, which I mean, relatable. That's what my face is. But at the same time, I'm like, all these people look the same. Yeah. 
you know, even like, you know, not royal families where they, I guess they should look the same, but like, just, you know, same face all over. But these actually look pretty dynamically different. Cool. Kind of cool. Um, okay, anyway, sorry to derail. No worries. Way to fight the good fight at Wikipedia. We need it to be a better resource. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, like I said, it's where I start. It's not necessarily where I get all the things from, mm-hmm. but it's definitely good for, like, the references portion. Yeah, for sure. Finding other sources. I love a good Britannica. Me too. That's a big one. Um, And then I, I also like a good YouTube lecture. Mm-hmm. That one was good for Hypatia. I watched some ladies, like... Hour long, she got a little in the weeds with like the math that she studied, but it was it was good to hear like um someone seasoned talk about it in a different way than reading it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for you sure. Sort of listen to it while you do the dishes and like osmosis stuff. Yeah, huh. I think that like the, another cool thing is right, like we are all empowered to fix Wikipedia as we want. Like we can edit pages, That's we can true. do research, I can't we can do those them links. for editing it when I don't take the time to do so. Yeah, I don't either, but there, I'll post a link on our on our notes about how to go about doing that, because there's lots of resources about, like, what are those standards, and how can you write a good page, and there's even a couple of yeah. lists um, that some of these organizations have about prominent female scientists who don't yet have Wikipedia pages. So if anyone Yeah, is... and I hope that maybe if somebody is an editor of a Wikipedia page, maybe they try and, like, learn something outside their scope. Or outside their, like, maybe they didn't realize they had blinders on. And could maybe do a little research on something different. Yeah, for sure. And who knows? I mean, if anyone wants to go edit some of the pages for the women that we've done episodes about, there are a few who could probably use a little bit of help. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I might check the Wikipedia page of mine after we talk about it. Well, good job, Michael. Do you want to take a break? Yeah, let's take a break. Break. (laughs) Okay. Are you ready to talk about old people? Yes, always. Okay, great. What time are we at? 40 minutes. Okay. Not bad. Um, Especially after last week. No, you did great. I thought it was fun conversation last week. Yeah, no, I loved it too. I think it was just our longest episode ever. You're welcome. <laughs> we have a lot to say. Um, okay, from the written notes. Yes. Okay, so um, I will probably uh, westernize this pronunciation, and I apologize. I did try and find some sources online, um, and the consensus is it's Kutuyun. Or Kutuyun or Kutuyun or something like that. Mm-hmm. So um, I will probably say it a menagerie of ways because I am not, I have only written this word down. I haven't said it out loud a lot. Um, but we're going to go, <laughs> we're going to go to another time in another continent. And apparently I'm on like an ancient empire kind of vibe. Yeah, it would like so. Karam and stuff. Who was it last week? It was, it was um, Fanny Lou. Uh, who was very different, but um, kind of similar to my um, Ottoman Turk land. I went to somewhere that I don't know a lot about to kind of like dip a little in um, to the water and see like what came out. So I'm going to do Kutiyun, who is a famous Mongolian woman, princess lady. Um, 
But this starts out, I'm going to tell you things that you might know, because I, I don't know what you know about Genghis Khan or all the cons or how the cons work. Not a whole lot. Emperor or all of that. Okay. So I get the great privilege of explaining this to you, too, just like I did the Ottoman Turks. <laughs> so I'm going to leave a lot out. Um, but basically, uh, Mongolia was a, was a um, land of nomadic tribes that were all kind of bonded together in a common goal of like, keep the Chinese out and <laughs> kind of preserve our way of life and all that stuff. And they had a power structure within them, but they had never really been united. Um, and so you hear about Genghis Khan and he's kind of the first, he's not the first leader of them, but he's one of the, he's like the biggest deal because he sort of expands their scope and starts to do what all empires do and go invade others Mm -hmm. and has great military awareness and is able to like play the game correctly for the time that he yields, um, immense power and immense sway over his region of the world. And basically... Uh, it's the 13th and 14th centuries, so 1200s through 1300s, that hate him and then his his lineage then kind of create the new power dynamic in the East. At the height of its uh, power, it is the largest, what's the word, contiguous, not continuous, contiguous land empire. So basically they go from the Pacific to the Mediterranean. In scope. They're huge. They go all the way to Russia. They go up into the Western Europe, Eastern Europe, sorry, um, in terms of the range of their might. And the way it would work is similar to the Ottoman Turks, where they would have one leader and then he would delegate all these parcels out to different, I think it was like, I'm sure I'm saying it wrong, Khanates or Khanates, K-H-A-N-A-T-E, which is like the sub Khanates, Khanates is the subsection of the whole empire. Mm-hmm. So you had Genghis, big boy, and then all the rest of them. I mean, he was like the, he was the dude. Um, and then he had like 17 kids and they all ran different canates. And then there's some like, okay, this is where we get fuzzy because I just don't care. Um, even though I'm sure it's very important, but this isn't about Genghis Khan. There's plenty about Genghis Khan. You can go read about Genghis Khan in your own time. It gets to his kids. There's certain, you know, succession issues. You have a bunch of kids. They don't know who's going to win. Who's the strongest? Who's the smartest? Who's the little finger in all of this? You know what I mean? Not to pull too much from Game of Thrones. But oh my God, George Martin stole everything. Can we talk about it? (laughs) Genghis Khan, the great Khan, Khal Drogo, unites all of the nomadic warrior tribes. It's a lot. But also reading it, I'm realizing like how... I'm sorry, this is me just being stupid. I'm realizing, like, how, um, just a tangent for a second, how westernized the interpretation of the Mongols is in that literature. So, like, I don't know. I That's my interpretation, because it doesn't, from reading about it, I was like, they are mighty warriors. They are militarized and smart about strategy. They uh, become known for invading and terrorizing cities, sacking the whole city, killing anybody who you know, didn't appease them. And they were merciless. They didn't care if it was children. They didn't care if it was old ladies. They were going to kill them all if they didn't surrender. So, like, that is the same in, like, the fictional Game of Thronesy land. Mm-hmm. But then there's also this, like, quote-unquote barbarian mentality towards them. Like, they're uncivilized and they're not... They don't have this... I don't know. You know what I mean? There's a tone. There's a tone. 
They're never the like superior dominant force. They're like, oh, bless them. They're going to come help. You know what I mean? Right. Like they're, which is a very Western. There's something to be worried about. Like they're a problem. They're scary, but they're not. They're just sa- they're the quote unquote savage merciless. You know, they don't have a reason for doing what they're doing. And also they're no worse than any of these Western people. So let's all calm down. Um, but they're really good at scaring the crap out of their neighbors, sacking a city, and uh, accruing wealth and land. So part of that is their military structure. They are known as, like, horse soldiers. I mean, they can all shoot arrows off horseback. A horse is, like, because they're a nomadic tribe, your value is in your skill on a horse and what you can do and how many horses you have and all that stuff. Um as a nomadic empire would be. So where are we at? We have Genghis Khan. He has a lot of kids. He's growing the empire. C- Civil war after his succession, or the succession after him got a little murky. So then we get to his grandson, Kublai Khan. Kublai Khan? Mm-hmm. That sounds you probably familiar. heard that name. So he's the grandson of Genghis Khan. He becomes kind of the next big deal because what he ends up doing with China he goes down into China and he sets up the Khans as the next dynasty of China, the Yuan dynasty. Hmm. And he's basically like, we're Yuan now. We are you and we will be your emperors. We are the Chinese emperors. We are the family of Yuan. You're welcome to kind of assimilate the Chinese into their leadership, if that makes sense. So that's kind of from what I read. That is why Kublai Khan is sort of... Mm-hmm the next big name in the Khan family. Um, yeah, I mean, it gets crazy. The, 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 they affected our modern world in more ways than I realized. So like a couple little of their greatest hits that I found that I did not know was the expulsion of the Mongolians from Russia is sort of where SARS came from. Like, the fact that the first czar, the reason he had such power and was appointed czar is because he helped push the Khans out. So he helped save Russia from these invaders, which I was like, oh, that whole power structure changed because of them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, uh, besides their use of, like, I've heard, I saw bombs as part of their thing, like um, gunpowder and things like that. They also, um, <laughs> they pioneered the use of biological weapons. Um in the form of, we're going to get gross here, folks, in the form of dead bodies riddled with disease that they would catapult into cities that they were sacking ahead of them trying to kill everyone. So they would throw basically like diseased bodies into the town and then hope a lot of people got sick and died off. And then they'd have less ransacking to do. But they also think this is one theory that helped bring the Black Plague to Europe is that some of these diseased bodies might have had bubonic plague and was, like, causing issue in the army. So, like, well, let's get them out of here. And they, like, threw them over the wall and gave bubonic plague to, like, Paris or whatever. Anyway, yeah, they didn't get to Paris, but you know what I mean. Yeah, ooh, that's rough. If it's all of a sudden in Eastern Europe, it very quickly makes its way everywhere else. Um, uh, that being said, okay, we're going to get to Our Lady now. So... In the Mongolian lifestyle, there's still, like, the basics are the same as everywhere else, where it's still a patriarchal society. It's a warrior culture. It's a it's a nomadic culture. There is a sense of home and family, but women are by no means, like, wilting 
things to be protected. They were taught to ride horseback. They were taught to shoot arrows. They were taught to, um, you know, practice what the man practiced. But there was, like, delegation based on sex of, like, what the responsibilities were. Um, Sometimes they would be fighting. It would just be, like, I think it's just more, like, when you're a nomadic lifestyle, you have to defend yourself. You're less protected than if you're in a city, right? Right. Like, all of a sudden, it's just you in the landscape. Like, there's just, it's like a, a, I always, in my brain, I was just equating it to, like, Western Americans. Like, women out there are just differently perceived because you had to be. Like, it's not as much, it's not as um, controlled as it is in the East where there's wealth and, like, ease of living to then shelter and protect. Because the terrain and the environment was so tumultuous, you kind of have to ask both genders to step up. That's how I view it. And maybe that's just, that's one woman's interpretation. Um... However, it is still, you know, it is still divided. There is still, like, gender norms put on both parties and that kind of thing. There's still an immense, like, value in a daughter being used for, like, marriages between different um, tribes and things like that. You know, there I saw a whole thing of, like, if you were a wife-giving tribe versus a wife-taking tribe. Hmm. If you're a wife-giving tribe, that means, like, you're giving wealth away. You probably are old money you have a lot of prestige. People want your daughters to marry into their... Whereas you're, if you're a wife-taking tribe, you're probably new money that needs to establish itself. And so, while it's fun to think of yourself as a commodity <laughs> and a piece of property, um, yeah, as a hoot in the Mongolian Empire. So I'm not saying they're like wildly progressive or anything, but something I didn't think about before now. Um so then we get to Kutuyun. So it's about 1260. Genghis Khan is, he's gone. He's done his bit. And now it's uh, Kublai Khan is sort of running the roost, trying to set up that dynasty. His brother, who has a name that I didn't write down. It's like Kadeh or something like that. Kadi, maybe. He's, he's fine. He's dad. We'll call him dad. He's the dad to Kutuyun. He has had 14 sons. Oh, boy. And then he has a sweet little baby girl named Kutuyun as his 15th child. And then I guess they stop. They stop at 15. Um, so that makes her the niece of Kublai Khan and the great-great-granddaughter of Genghis Khan. So she is technically a princess, but she's not in the, like, direct lineage. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. She's a, for a Western version, she's, um... Duke York's kids. You know what I mean? The ones with the hats. I don't even know their names. Beatrice is one? I don't know. They always have the hats on. Uh, But she doesn't wear a hat. She just has a good time. Um, With 14 older brothers, I think there's some stuff that happens in her childhood that she is maybe... uh, I don't know. uh, This is where it gets murky, guys. Okay? Because there's not a lot of written records. She didn't have a biography written down and everything. So a lot of it is interpretation and kind of um, projection on who she was as a person. But here's the here's the gist. Um, with 14 older brothers, and she's the only girl, she bonds with her dad and seems to have this bond through her whole life. He kind of grants her a little bit more leniency than he would. Or like a lesser, um, a less privileged person would maybe have because she is wealthy and she is, you know great-great-granddaughter of Genghis Khan and Kublai Khan's her uncle and all this stuff. Um, there is a little fighting between her dad and Kublai Khan about 
who's in charge of what her dad is running this whole section of the empire as like his has the brother to the great Khan. Um, so she has a little bit of um, less expectation put on her of the normal female in a Mongolian tribe. Um, she is the only daughter of a powerful man. So that probably makes her a pretty hot commodity of the time based on what we said about like giving families, taking families, all of that stuff. Uh. Um, but she doesn't really want to get married. <laughs> Go figure. I don't know why. Um, she's apparently trained really well in horseback riding and archery. She rides with her dad on many trips in battle. Um, she seems to participate alongside her brothers and her father. Um, there's, there's language about her skill on horseback and that the way it's described uh, which I wish was a little more detailed because my brain just can't quite wrap around it. But if the Mongolians are here, they're like trying to attack the opposing force. And she would dart out and go to one of the enemy and like snatch him off the horse and like ride him back to her dad. Like really suddenly. She's equated in all this language to like a certain kind of animal, like a hawk or a panther or something like that. So like her skill was seen in public out loud in battle, you know, as this great aid to her father. And this kind of, like, creepy assassin vibe, you know what I mean? Like, she could just get in there and get out, and, like, her skill on the horse was amazing. While women were skilled in archery and horseback, they weren't necessarily front lines skilled. Mm. It's more like you have, I mean, from my understanding, it's more like you have the skills if you need them, but you're not, they're not 50-50 out there on the front lines. But she was out there with her dad, the general, for lack of a better word, helping with his campaigns and like showing off this skill in front of like not only her dad but like the troops and the opposing troops like haha a woman just took you out and took you to the con have fun with that you know what i mean so um yeah so the next thing uh that she is probably most famous for is um the the trajectory of this whole marriage dilemma that she had and whether her father allowed it or they arranged something. It's kind of lost to history. It's always coming. But they, the legend goes that she's of marrying age. It would do them well that she got married. It's about that time. She does not want to get married. So her mother and father, I don't know who her mother is. I don't think they even say it. Um, her mother and father come up to her like, hey, you have to get married. And she's like, okay, I'll get married. Um, I'll get married. Uh, you guys know how I'm really great at wrestling? Do you know how good I am at that and how I beat all my brothers all the time? So I will get married to the next man that beats me. And if I win, he will have to give me 100 horses. Because then we know he's worthy of me, too. Not just physically, but financially. Right? And they're like, for some reason, they're like, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Kutiyun, that sounds great. Um... The legend goes. And so uh, she then proceeds to take on potential suitors and wrestles them, which is apparently like quite the pastime, whether it's still in modern practice or not. I'm not sure, but it is hardcore and you do everything you can to just throw your opponent to the ground and pin them. Uh, Apparently this becomes quite the feat and like everyone, then it becomes a posturing thing. Like, oh, I'm going to get her to marry me. You know how it gets competitive anyway with like, the mating rituals of human people. <laughs> it's so problematic. Um, so 10,000 horses later, she's still not married. 
And full credit, where credit is due, 10,000 in old ancient tales is often used as, like, the number that's unreachable. So, like, who knows how many horses it actually was. But the lo and behold uh, legend of her is that she didn't have to marry nobody because none of them beat her. She could wrestle all the men to the ground. So, like, in terms of physical ability, she was unmatched. Um... At some point, there's some, like, political intrigue. Like, they're starting some rumors about her dad and her. So then she's forced to marry. There's not a lot about who she marries. There's a whole other guy that gets a thousand horses to... Be- anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah. And then, uh, um, as her dad is failing in health, there's rumors that he wanted her to succeed him. Um, there's clearly a bond there. There's some kind of kinship that she gets him more than, or like, you know, baby, baby child, mm-hmm. really awesome on horseback, wrestles all the men. Like, there's a bit of like apple of his eye vibe going on. Um, however, in a patriarchal structure with 14 sons that came before her, that doesn't really go over well. Her dad dies and there's kind of a power structure issue. You don't really see her talked about after her dad dies. Um. I'm sure because part of being a ruler is having people follow you. And if they're just not ready, they're not ready. So um, she ends up passing away like five years after her dad dies in kind of obscurity. It's not really clear. So her her, um, story is lost to legend. The one person we've heard direct writings about her from is actually Marco Polo. Um, But apparently Marco Polo got in good with Kublai Khan and he sent him over... To meet with Kutuyun and her dad, and that's where he met her and like heard about her and stuff like that. That's very but cool. But we didn't have his writings. I think the writings about her specifically were lost or weren't used for a really long time. So there was like a rediscovery of her later on, and um, more specifically, uh, a guy named Francois Lacroix, which like what a French name, <laughs> um, writes a biography. I believe of one of the cons and of Genghis Khan and kind of writes about her in one section and it sort of captivates the mind. Then a story is written called Turandot or Turando. I'm not sure how you're supposed to say it, which becomes like a story about this like famed princess who uh, they of course change it so that she doesn't wrestle because this is 1700s in France. So we can't really (laughs) a woman wrestling come now. What a Philistine practice. We will duel each other in the mid-morning with swords. That is the most civilized meaning. Your stuck-up French accent is just a stuck-up British accent. I'm really here for I that. I can only do one thing. I can only do one thing. Do you know, they're all the same. Let's be real. Come on. All those rich people wanted to sound like the other rich people. So anyway, turned out, they wrote it. So Okay, so this is my favorite. So how we interpret stories to fit the times. So instead of making her a wrestler... They say that she has a sharp wit and she challenges men to a riddle. And if they can solve the riddle, then she uh, will marry them. Um, And then it takes its final turn in the 1900s or late 1800s when it becomes an opera. And this is how we know Turandot today. And you know what? The best thing about the opera is, guys, she finally gets out of her own way and falls in love. Isn't that great? It's the story. It's the story we were all waiting for. For 800 years. Um, Yeah, Marco Polo's writings are found later. Uh, The other thing everyone likes to say about the Mongolian Empire and the Genghis Khan lineage in general is just 
Um, one in every 200 people are direct descendants of Genghis Khan because he had 17 kids and his eldest son alone had 40 legitimate sons. Because when you can have multiple wives and they're all fine, everything's fine. So maybe that also means even though she is not a direct mother to a lot of us, she's at least a cousin or an auntie to a lot of us. And like... If you're related to Genghis Khan, maybe you're also related to Kutuyun, and she seems super cool. She does. Um, she's also seen as, the other thing I like is, she's um, one of the only women to own a Gurji, G-E-R-G-E-E, which is like this kind of medallion given to prestigious people in power in the Mongolian Empire. Um, but it's given by the Khans to people who present and engage with and come across as holding power and providing power to the people. So they, it's a prestigious award. You have to have immense authority and resolve to carry one. And she, she is one of the few women, if not the only woman to know, knowingly have one and like wear it in her own right. So that's kind of specific to the culture itself, which I found fascinating. So, yeah. Yeah, 10,000 horses in a nomadic society. That is Bill Gates-level wealth, man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's also a whole other thing of, like, the mail system in the Mongolian Empire was really efficient because of their predisposition to horses. So, like, they were just really good on horseback, A, and then they had figured out the system really well, B. So they would, like, did the math, and they're like, you could get 25 miles out of a horse for this long. And then you pick up another horse and these are where the stations will be. So like their Pony Express was beautiful. And then later cons developed like you would have this road would be the elite road where the fastest horses lived. And that would be like priority express shipping. (laughs) And then you would have like standard seven day. And that would be like the old lame pony that would like hobble down the road. And like they would have different tiers. Which when you're a giant ass empire... Communication is key. So they actually invested in some of the interesting parts of their infrastructure. Yeah. So there you go. Mongolians. Didn't know a lot about them. Still don't. Let's be real. I got to brush up on my Genghis Khan. But we're not talking about him today. We're talking about Kutuyun. Oh, let me let me spell it because it's a wild ride. It's fun. Um, K-H-U-T-U-L-U-N. A lot of use. A lot of use. But yeah, she's super cool. And there's even like um, medieval engraving pictures that look like very white people, but it's apparently her like wrestling um, her potential suitor mm. to the ground and stuff. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know where it's. I can't find out where it's from or like who engraved it. It honestly might be Kutuyun, daughter of Kaidu, medieval miniatures, 1410 to 1412. So that's significantly later than she was alive. Yeah. Um, and now I've heard of Turandot before because I think that's where one of the famous arias is Yeah, from. I was just Googling it. On N- is that, oh, Nesin that's where Nessun Dorma is from. Yeah. Which is now like the unofficial anthem of like Italy or something. I don't know. Um, Pavarotti singing it anyway. Uh, but that is about Kutuyun, technically, if you think about it that way. Um, Turandot means Central Asian daughter in Persian. (laughs) So 
So there you go. I think her I think her name technically meant moonlight in its native language, which I found pretty. Um and apparently she is in the Netflix series Marco Polo. I hope I hope it's cool and not like the secret romance of Marco Polo and this princess. Anyway, Kutuyun, there you go. There are times where I get very much into the research part, and then I'm like, how will I ever spin this down? And I'm like, if I actually only have to talk 15 minutes about it, you gotta you gotta just pull some punches and not go into the like uh systematic warfare of Mongolian hordes on uh walled <laughs> cities in medieval Europe. Yeah, sometimes it's just better to leave that to the imagination. Yeah. Yeah, but it is fascinating, too, as I start to layer things on that I I knew about in theory, but not in reality, Mm -hmm. of, like, Ottoman Turks are coming up right about this time, and then the Mongolians start to come in around 1200, and, like, how they start to fight at the kind of eastern border or whatever, and Russia's not even a country yet, it's just a bunch of stuff up there, and it's just Moscow is really the only city, and all of Russian history is crazy, I mean... I don't know any, I don't know enough about that. I won't say that. Or the Byzantine Empire. We don't know enough about that either. Yeah. Enough. What's enough? I don't know. Who's to say? But it's all, yeah, it's all pretty bonkers, but it is cool to get to see it sort of come together and be yeah. able to put pieces. I think that's what I'm focusing on. It's just like big, big blank spots in my understanding because I have such a Western predisposition. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, just where I live, what I do. Um, context is key, right? So it's fun to learn about some of these other people to help flesh it out in a different way. And then to be like, yeah, what is a harem like in ancient Turkey? Mm-hmm. And what, do, what does the regular life of like a Mongolian woman look like in 1265? Who had 14 kids? Oh, my God. So many kids. I don't actually know if they were all the same wife because they were a poly, uh, polygamous society. So maybe it was a couple wives. But still, 14 kids running around. Oh. No, thank you. 14 boys. Oh, my God. How do you just not always have a succession issue? I think I guess they that's do. why you do, yeah. <laughs> it's like both, like, it's both, like, wealth and authority to have all these children, and then horribly inefficient because then it's not clear as to who takes over. Yeah, I get why they're, like... It's good for one generation, and then it's Then it's a mess. Awful. Right, you want like yeah. an heir and a spare. So if something goes wrong, you've got a backup, but you really don't want more than that because then it becomes a well, problem. Well, yeah, and you also have to like train the other kids. Be like, you are the support structure. You are the board of directors for this one. He's just wearing the suit and out front. But like, because how do you not? I mean, like I remember learning about some Indian history where it was just like a given that the brothers would have to kill each other. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I'm like that's what we're gonna do. I think there's got to be a better way. <laughs> So, like, sign me up, I guess. What? <laughs> Heavy's the head, I guess. To wear the crown and all that stuff? Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, indeed. It's screwy. It's screwy. Yeah. And then you look at Richard Third and all of them, and you're like, yeah, no, that's, yeah. It's, it's a bunch of brothers fighting over one thing. It's weird. Yep. That's why... All cultures. Hereditary monarchies are so good. Sometimes they have their, you know... Their moments. I have heard that it is nice. Um, I heard this from a British person where it is sort of nice to have a celebrity aspect to the political structure that can sort of take all of the like 
media coverage about like what are they wearing who are they seeing what's going on and then the politicians can be politicians and they don't have to mm. be quote unquote sexy you know what i mean they don't have to like have the human interest part yeah they can just like be now does that work all the time no because we know way too much about boris johnson right now but there is something to be said of like this entity that is the government that takes all of the nonsense of like media and derailment of like mm-hmm. getting work done yeah that's i could i could see that so i was like that's probably the best uh validation for the monarchy i've ever heard because after that it doesn't really hold much water for me but <laughs> i'm an american yeah, so i'm with you on that to each their own i do love the royal family i i pay attention to what they do more than i should probably yeah i'm not i'm not a huge fan but can understand the appeal fan is different than like i know a lot about them fair fair point yeah a lot of what I know about them is just like, why are you guys still a thing? <laughs> like, it's that, it's kind of like that diorama of like, what's going on in here? Like, how? Like, what are we doing? How does this work? How do you guys have any normal relationships? Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway, what a, t- what a tangent we've been yeah. on. Sorry, friends. Sorry, friends. Hope you enjoyed it. It's shorter than last week's. <laughs> I think. Yeah, we're still there. All right. Should we sign off now? I think so. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you'd like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our producer, Jen, and to Catherine for doing our social media. Thank you for listening to Missing History.